chain, 21 pound. Uh, I'm not a typical arrogant American known prescribed medicine. Now I'm sick as I ever been. Rolling out of the dealership in the McLaren. These rappers is Peter Pan, I'm Pan African. Space Invader Black and them, mixing Alexander McQueen with Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. I'm your host, Doc Fitz, and uh, we have a great show today. Uh, perhaps our most academic surgical interview yet with Dr. Thomas McIntyre, a global surgeon from Baltimore by way of Pittsburgh and Boston and Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, as well as a veteran of the Partners in Health efforts in Haiti, currently working on building health infrastructure in Burundi with Village Health Work. But before we get to talking to him about global surgery, I wanted to turn our attention towards Baltimore. A couple of weeks ago, Baltimore City College High School, also known as City, and Mergenthaler Vocational Technical High School, known as Mervo, competed in the annual City Public High School Lacrosse Championships. Though it went largely unnoticed, this competition represented a microcosm of trauma and brilliance in Baltimore in the age of Trump. Baltimore is an historic hotbed for lacrosse and until recently the home of the Lacrosse Hall of Fame for a sport that is rapidly growing in popularity across the country. The city, of course, is also deeply segregated and has never overcome a legacy of racism and structural violence. In the era of Jim Crow, the white schools in the city's segregated system were strong and its lacrosse teams were among the nation's best. Even for about a generation after Brown vs. the Board of Education, schools such as City, Poly, Forest Park, and Mervo remain regional powerhouses with newly integrated squads. This is the same era that The Wire's character, Bunk, played by Wendell Pierce, would have been tearing up the lacrosse field as a student-athlete at Edmondson High School. Many of the African-American players from those teams went on to play at the first historically black university to field a lacrosse team at Morgan State, featured in the book Ten Bears. This team was one of the most underrated and routinely beat the best collegiate teams in the country during the 70s and the early 80s. However, over time, city schools resegregated, white and wealthy families moved out of the district or sent their children to private schools. As a result uh, of political divestment and falling enrollment in the school system, the center of gravity of Baltimore Lacrosse shifted to public schools in North Baltimore County, where the Lacrosse Hall of Fame now resides, and elite private schools in the city. These schools are now the recruiting grounds for elite university teams from Johns Hopkins to Duke University. Meanwhile, the city system has struggled to get adequate coaching, investment, and recruiting interest. The Morgan State team faded from prominence and no longer competes in NCAA competition. Baltimore City schools have further fallen into disrepair and underfunding as enrollment has continued to fall. This crisis came to national attention this winter as video from inside the schools showed shivering children wearing their coats as the heating systems failed in multiple schools. While Baltimore schools have resegregated, the housing never really integrated, and the resulting neighborhood racial lines created a, quote, white L of more affluent and more white neighborhoods surrounded by a, quote, black butterfly, as described by the work of Morgan State professor Dr. Lawrence Brown, with higher rates of abandoned houses, lead poisoning, and poverty within that black butterfly. This social structure has materially harmed the people of Baltimore by preventing them from meeting their material needs. And as such, this is known as structural violence. As recent research has shown, structural violence is associated with increased risk of deadly violence in affected communities. Not surprisingly, Baltimore's black neighborhoods have higher rates of gun violence, addiction, aggressive policing, and incarceration. The city and Mervo teams in this year's championship reflect the racial makeup of the city school system as a whole, and approximately 85% of the students competing were African American. The drama of this championship game was heightened when the initial date for the game was rained out. Before the game could be re rescheduled, City's 17-year-old captain and scholastic standout Roy Glasgow III was murdered in East Baltimore. At the beginning of the game, City pulled out to an early 2-0 lead, but City's defense was unable to keep up with Mervo's efficient offensive attacks on goal, and at times, City's defense seemed to be playing a man down, clearly missing Ray's defensive leadership. Late in the first quarter of this city championship, the mayor and the police chief, Daryl DeSalsa, arrived with a conspicuous motorcade, and the two watched until halftime from a prominent position in the front of the audience. However, 
Days later, the mayor was reading D'Souza's resignation as federal authorities announced charges against him for failure to file taxes for at least three years. You know, as a whole, the Baltimore Police Department has been entirely incapable of confronting the violence gripping the city. In fact, the department seems to be struggling to achieve any sense of trust with its citizens. Eight police were recently convicted of running a criminal conspiracy out of the Gun Trace Task Force of the Baltimore City Police Department that included armed robbery and planting of evidence. There was even additional testimony during that case of evidence tampering by other supervising officers and several cases of negligent homicide by police that were not prosecuted. The department is on its third chief or interim chief since that trial amid calls for the entire department to be disbanded. While the city has seen a record number of homicides in 2017, a total of 343, including 12 school-aged children, giving a sense of urgency to a movement of Baltimore residents calling for an organized ceasefire. These efforts have culminated in weekend-long, coordinated, citywide efforts against violence. The previous ceasefire in February began an uncharacteristic period of 11 days without murder, the longest since March 2014. Ray was murdered during a particularly brutal period in which the city saw 43 homicides in 39 days, starting in the beginning of April. As part of work with Ceasefire, Erica Bridgeford has gone with other activists to every location in the city where someone has lost, lost their life to murder. And I've been struck by how the geography of murder speaks to the same legacy of divestment in the shadows of the great institutions of the city. I noted at the site of a murder on Federal Street in East Baltimore, not only the abandoned houses on one side of the street, but the abandoned school building across the street that took up a whole city block. From the site of another murder around the corner, past a row of abandoned houses on Register Street, we burned sage, took a knee, and said a prayer. This process of abandonment and divestment of the city continues to this day. For example, the popular governor, Larry Hogan, up for an election later this year, forfeited millions of dollars in federal investment in a new subway line in Baltimore in favor of building new highways in suburban and rural districts. And just as the Lacrosse Hall of Fame left town, the local jewel in the Triple Crown series, the Pimlico Preakness Stakes, is hinting of a move out of the Northwest Baltimore racetrack on the edge of the Park Heights neighborhood. However, numerous powerful institutions still call the city home. For example, Ray was killed in the shadow of Johns Hopkins Hospital. Similarly, the only recognizable brand that could be seen from the site of that Register Street homicide were the oversized letters spelling Johns Hopkins on the side of the university and hospital buildings. And just as the campus of Johns Hopkins Hospital looms over the geography of murder in East Baltimore, so do the University of Maryland Medical Center and the abandoned Federal Social Security Complex loom over sites of murder in West Baltimore. While all lives lost to murder matter and are valuable, Ray's killing really hurt. You could see this as the City Lacrosse team left the field at the end of the match shedding tears for their missing captain. While this murder was barely noticed outside of the city, this cannot be treated as normal. This has to be a never again moment that includes but goes beyond efforts against violent behavior and the saturation of our communities with firearms. This is the energy that came out the following Mother's Day weekend, May 11 through 13, the fourth Baltimore ceasefire weekend. While there was a sad story of fatal child abuse, Nobody was killed that weekend from a shooting or stabbing. Baltimore residents participating in this ceasefire are articulating the fierce urgency of now in this work against violence, but also against poverty, neglect, and inequality that burdens our children with lead poisoning, inadequate school facilities, and incarceration. For the swords to turn to plowshares, the hammer has to fall. And it demands this work all year long, and it will not tolerate complacency. It means that Baltimore residents commit to work against violence, that all levels of government invest in the future of the city's residents. It also calls on all individuals, families, and institutions in the city, as well as those who have previously divested or moved from the city, to feel the same urgency and support us in this work to show Baltimore love and to stop the violence. It also means being present, hiring in the city, and mentoring in the city's schools. This includes valuing, investing in, and recruiting from Baltimore City public schools, rich and resilient lacrosse tradition. Still speak,
in my mind just in a different dialect. It takes two to make anthropology, the student and the studied. That being the case, it is time for the study to examine the student and to evaluate its own I said, I've seen it all and had it all and I ain't mad at all. This rapper talks, gravitas like a cannonball, staying up all night, throwing my sleep pattern off. I need a doctor on call to keep... Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. I'm uh, here at Red Emma's Bookstore and Coffee House uh, with a good friend of the knife, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Thomas McIntyre. Thomas, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, Simon? I'm good. I'm good. And I think um, one of my very early uh, memories of you is you sort of took me around Haiti and uh, all the health infrastructure in Haiti from the University Hospital in Port-au-Prince to a sort of state-of-the-art hospital that hadn't even been open yet, Mirabale, affiliated with Partners in Health, and then the well-known uh, Partners in Health Hospital in Kanj in the Central Plateau. And so I just say that to frame that you're one of the people I really look up to in the world of global surgery. And I think there's a lot of interest in international and global surgery. And I don't know whether this is necessarily true, but I feel like sometimes it feels like there's not a lot of people leading, there's not a lot of mentorship, there's not a lot of infrastructure to take young surgeons in and help guide them on a career in global surgery. Yeah. I, I'd like to get a sense, do you think that's a, a fair uh, statement? Oh yeah, it's completely true. You know, it's something I obviously faced when I had these type of interests, you know, 10 years ago. You know, this, this type of work, this work in, in global health for surgeons, it's not entirely new, but it's taken on uh, a seriousness that's, that's, that's definitely new in the last, I would say, 10, 20 years. You know, before that, most global health and international health was felt to be, you know, you got to go into internal medicine to do global health. Right. And that's, Infectious disease, classically. Yeah, and that's what I thought even when I was a medical student. You know, I was on the track to do internal medicine, and, you know, I worked in a vaccine development program in Chile when I was a medical student. You know, I had to come to grips with whether or not what I actually wanted my days to be like. And I actually had so much more fun uh, when I was doing surgery than, to be honest, when I was doing internal medicine. So I had to break it down, and, and I ended up going into surgery and kind of forgot about global health for, you know, five or ten years because I was just doing surgery. And just like what you said, there was no one in my universe that was doing the type of stuff I ultimately wanted to do. The, the people that kind of pulled me back into doing this type of work were actually not surgeons. They were infectious disease and internal medicine doctors. So when I was in Boston, I, I was exposed to Partners in Health, which you know famously arose out of uh, the HIV epidemic in Haiti. And I um, asked them, you know, hey, I'm a surgeon, can I help? And they were, they, were, they were super excited to have a surgeon because, you know, they never really had surgeons interested in this. So um, it's very challenging for young surgeons that have this interest because there are not a lot of people that you can, you can kind of model your, your career after. The good news is, is that what has happened since, uh, I would say, the 90s with the HIV epidemic, there has, has been really a sea change in global health. So, you know, gl global health you know, generally is, you know, the work of delivering health care to impoverished communities, you know, wherever they are. And for a long time, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it was about like preventing diseases or treating um, outbreaks, treating disasters in faraway places. But what has started to change is the focus is now is building resilient health care systems. Capacity building. Capacity building not just targeting specific problems, but building a system. And when you talk about building a system, then all the different components have a place at the table. Surgery, psychiatry, uh, OBGYN. So all these things that were kind of not traditionally engaged in public health have huge levels of engagement now because there's been a, a, a shift in focus to actually delivery of care. So the complicated part now is how do you actually deliver quality care in these difficult places? And that is, you know, that's part of the reason why when you were with me in Haiti, we saw a bunch of different types of institutions because a lot of people are trying to address this question in different ways. And, you know, the answer wherever you're working, whatever impoverished community or country you're working in is going to be different. It's going to be different based on the history of what's there, uh, the resources at hand. 
and the individuals that are making it happen. So how did you find your way into global surgery? What was that process like? I was a fellow in Boston working at you know, one of the Harvard hospitals, and the Partners in Health office was there, and I walked into the medical director's office, Joya Mukherjee, and I said, hey, I'm a surgeon. This is, I mean, true, I, you know, I'm a surgeon, this is my background, I, I wanna work with you guys. And she literally said to me, there's never been a surgeon walking into this office, you can do whatever you want. You can, you can go live in Haiti for the rest of your life, you can go there once and do, she's like, we just need experts to help. And that was the introduction for me. And so, you know, it was a little bit more, it's more me satisfying my curiosity and just staying curious and having experiences and letting those experiences generate work that's meaningful rather than saying, you know, I had a passion for global surgery when I was young and I went in this well-established route and, and uh, you know, there, there's no kind of like storybook route, I think, to be taken. It's just, you know, be curious when an opportunity presents itself, like take advantage of it. I think traditionally a lot of global health and particularly global surgery was almost transactional. You know, you showed up, you delivered a service, and that two, three, you know, week or whatever commitment was the extent. I don't know if you think that's fair. Is that how your experience started or was it always uh, more invested in, in, like you were saying, capacity building and, and building uh, uh, infrastructure in a longer term vision? So in many ways, surgery can be transactional because a transaction occurs, right? A surgery occurs. You can go to places and have a transaction that is clearly beneficial for, for the recipient. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I had a diversity of experiences when I first, first started doing global surgery. It wasn't just the experiences I had with partners in health. Uh, I was involved in a religious-based medical surgical trip to Mozambique that kind of demonstrated another paradigm. I was involved with even smaller NGOs that did minor surgeries in Sierra Leone. So I kind of saw the different ways you can do it. And, and common to all these was the transaction, you're right, the kind of surgical transaction. And in, in and of itself, the transaction is universally positive. However, if you can take a few steps back and see what that transaction does to the environments you're working in, that becomes more more important. And so what the ultimate goal is, is what we have here and whatever, what anyone would want would be like the ability to have surgery all the time whenever you need it. And if the solution is these short-term transactions, that's actually not getting you towards your goal. So what gets you towards your goal is not the short-term things, but the long-term building of foundations which would be, you know, infrastructure, equipment, and human resources. Right. And so as my career has evolved, more my work is involved with setting those foundations. And those foundations is what has been neglected in these poor countries for the last 40 years. Countries have not been able to invest in those foundations the way we were able to invest in them in the earlier part of the 1900s. Their healthcare budgets in most of these countries are less than $5 a day. So, you know, they've only been able to give oral re rehydration solutions or vaccinations or stuff like that. They haven't been able to build resilient, resilient systems. And so, you know, that's the hard part now is how are we going to build these foundations for these systems? And where are we going to get the money to do that? Because mm -hmm. all this stuff. Where does the funding come from? Yeah. So, and, and the contrast with the transactional model, right, is the transformational model. I guess it could also be looked at as just like, you know, the long-term the long -term solution. Yeah, exactly. And um, th that's just investing, I guess, in things that are, that are kind of beyond yourself and beyond your time there. So, again, it's stuff like infrastructure and, and equipment, um, but then also, you know, tra training human resources. So uh, it's really important in, you know, wherever you're working is your work is part of a strategy and a path to ensure human resource establishment staffing of, of these healthcare facilities that'll be like regenerative and, and, and kind of so, so these places will support itself. You know, people in low resource countries and poor countries, they know the healthcare that's out there and they want it and they want access to it and they want to be able to provide it. So 
the way you're transformational is not by just, just teaching these, these individuals, but also providing them with a platform for them to, to um, actually deliver the care, right? So, you know, even if you train a surgeon in Burundi, if there's no hospitals that are there that have the right infrastructure equipment to do the surgery, you're not going to stick around, right? So I guess I'm thinking about that same question in kind of two ways. One, or what, you know, like you said, when you step back and take a look, what is the impact of those, that sort of transactional model on the system? So how is it problematic? Yeah, so, so what transactional model does a lot of times, and it's clearly evident in Haiti, and I think I told you this anecdotal story of what happened to kind of like the National Teaching Hospital in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, you know, basically every surgeon in Haiti went through the training program at the National Teaching Hospital. Um, and one of the things that happened in the 90s when violence started to spike in Port-au-Prince is MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, you know, came in and, and established uh, a hospital to, do with, to deal with kind of like the emergencies from all the violence. And they established care that was totally free. And so what ended up happening is a large amount of the volume that had traditionally gone to the university teaching hospital all of a sudden gets transferred to this free international hospital that does not have a mandate for teaching and training. And what ended up happening is that the capacity of the university teaching hospital slowly declined to where they can't do enough surgical cases to train the people in country. So while MSF comes in and tries to establish something with good intentions, for the system, it can have unintended consequences. And it's really important when you enter into a country that actually has a system that is functioning, that you integrate with that system as much as you can, because you can do a lot of damage. You can undo a system by coming in and, and, and working in a silo. Um, you know, everyone talks about the importance of maintaining horizontal integration, uh, horizontal, sorry, orientation with your intervention rather than a vertical intervention, because if you just have vertical interventions, what happens is these things don't talk to each other, and they 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 end up kind of unraveling, and that's really what is what has happened in Haiti, um, mm -hmm. is that there are so many siloed interventions from uh, a lot of time external um, actors that are um, good intentioned, but it ends up messing messing up the inherent system that Haiti will need to actually rebuild itself. Like no, no country can take care of its own healthcare infrastructure without having a strong university and strong training programs and something that it feels like it owns. Um, and so if you step back, you know, your interventions, your support should be oriented to helping to bolster those systems. And, you know, Does when, that answer your question? Yeah, and when we were in Haiti, that was now, you know, I feel like that maybe was almost eight years ago now. Uh -huh. But there was some very interesting conversations going on. Um, when we were at the university hospital, you were with a group from SAGES, the academic laparoscopic yeah. minimally invasive group, training uh, or introducing laparoscopic training into that environment or re reinforcing yeah. the training. I'm curious, do you know what whatever happened to that? Is that is, did that investment, did that equipment... Was that something that was able to sustain itself? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question, and that's, that's kind of like a hot topic. Um, you know, why would you go into a resource-poor setting and provide some care that's, that's resource-intensive? You know, is this a good use of uh, energy and effort? And um, it's, it's not necessarily a simple answer. One of the ways you can answer that question is is very straightforward saying that the benefits of laparoscopic surgery. So, you know, for listeners out there that aren't surgeons, you know, laparoscopic surgery is when you make the small cuts. You operate up on TV screens and you do whatever you have to do through small incisions. And the benefits, uh, you know, the traditional benefits are, you know, shorter OR times, shorter hospital times, less wound infections, quicker to get back to work, less pain. So a lot of benefits. And one of the ways to answer that question is that in a poor community with poor patients, you. you get much, the benefits are, are um, amplified with poor patients. So a poor person gets much more out of the benefits of laparoscopic surgery than a rich, rich patient, right? Uh, so for instance, you know, they can get back home quicker. They can take care of their large family. They can do uh, 
work in, in farming and in agriculture quicker. Um, hospitals that are under-resourced will have less wound infections, will have less, less lengths of stay. So just from a healthcare standpoint, it would be important to introduce minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery. But perhaps the more important thing is that physicians, particularly surgeons, that are training in that country, this is what they want to learn. This is what, you know, they're not going to be able to unsee the fact that they know laparoscopic surgery exists, and this is what they want to do. And if they can't do it in Port-au-Prince and Haiti, they're going to go somewhere else and do it. So part of that, part of that, that trip was to engage the next generation of Haitian surgeons and also try to start to put in place the infrastructure to maintain a laparoscopic service at the university hospital. It has been tough. There's only been intermittent laparoscopic surgery at that university hospital since that trip. However, it was part of a broader program to train young surgeons in Haiti through some other laparoscopic uh, teaching facilities that has continued until this day and has trained now hundreds of Haitian surgeons into, into doing laparoscopy. And those are the surgeons that have gone out to other, other hospitals like the Hospital of Mirabale and have started to do laparoscopic surgery. And so it's part of the grand strategy of how you retain talent in a country. You want to, even though, you know, inherently you don't think it's important to spend money on technically advanced solutions, but it's part of the solution of reducing brain drain. Does that make sense? I feel like also when we were there, I felt like a fly on the wall. There was a lot of conversations between different organizations, these different silos. It felt like we were actually sort of looking across, you know, the fences that divided. Um, and for purposes like the, the training that you were talking about, has there been more collaboration, particularly with regards to education and capacity building surgically in Haiti since that time between the different sort of NGOs or, or international organizations? Yeah, there has been. Um, you know, now there SAGES, the Minimally Invasive um, Surgery Society here in the States, um, is part of organizing um, um, regular uh, case conferences. So they have video case conferences with external experts that have been coordinating the three surgical residency training programs in the country uh, at the University Hospital, the Hospital in Mirabale, and the Hospital in, in Capation. So these entities are starting to, to get together um, to share educational resources, hopefully to share um, actually physical, physical resources but I, I think it's challenging. I, I think there are so many different entities in Haiti that are doing work, coming at you from many, many different angles, that it's difficult. The other thing that makes it difficult in Haiti is, is in a lot of positions, with, whether it's you know, within the Ministry of Health or other administrative bodies, there, there's turnover and inertia, which makes it very hard to coordinate things even without all the myriad of different NGOs and other things. So, you know, Haiti is particularly challenging. And um, I think you know since in the last five years, since I've changed most of my attention to a, a, a different project, I, I haven't been working there as much. But it's very challenging. Um, but, but I think, you know, slow progress is being made in terms of trying to get the focus back on training and making sure that there is a consistent, um, uninterrupted training of, of young Haitian surgeons in kind of like the latest techniques. Another thing that I found really interesting with your work, when I met you at Kings County Hospital, it's a hospital with a large uh, Haitian patient population. Sure. So yeah. I remember you talked about being able to talk to your patients in at least some amount of Creole and uh, at least communicate uh, a certain respect and appreciation for that culture, that history, and you know that decision-making process. There was a, a very intuitive way in which your local and global work was integrated. Um, yeah, and I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think I was I was partially just lucky to have to have that strain of continuity. So when I started working with Partners in Health, is when I also started my job at. Kings County, Central Brooklyn, which is very West Indian, which is very, very Haitian. 
you know, as I spent time in Haiti, I started to learn Creole and I started to, um, you know, know things about the country. So when I had patients, Haitian patients in Brooklyn, it was very easily easy for me to um, establish some rapport. I mean, that's just a general thing about being a surgeon is, you know, your patient's going to do better if they are less afraid, if they feel like they can trust you, um, if there is some type of, of empathy that you, that you can kind of convey to them. So it just the, the smallest thing of, of showing the effort of trying to communicate in Creole go, goes a long way, particularly for me. Like, you know, I'm a white guy from Baltimore. They're totally not expecting it. It's important because, you know, when it comes to, like, why immigrant populations are sicker, it's because they fail to seek care a lot of the times because they don't feel comfortable in these um, healthcare institutions in the United States, whether it's because uh, there's the language barrier uh, or just kind of cultural barriers. So, so to, you know, establish a service that is not as kind of threatening is, is, is really important. It helps, helps kind of reduce that delay. This isn't directly responding to your question, but one of the things that people say is, you know, why do you have to kind of go to Haiti and do work? Why don't you just work here? And, right. and the, I don't necessarily look at it as an either or. Uh, again, you know, global health is just trying to deliver health in impoverished communities, whether it's, you know, in your backyard or, or 3,000 miles away. Uh, you know, the philosophy is all the same. You know, you're just trying to uh, deliver quality care because you think everyone has a right to it. Uh, and what you find in the two communities, you know, the, the issues are the same. It's all about, you know, barriers to seeking access, um, whether they're cultural barriers, barriers to actually getting into the system. So, you know, it's hard to get in the system if you're, you know, an immigrant with not a good support network but then also uh, failure to receive quality care and making sure the system that you're entering into, whether it's the public system in New York City or the local system in Haiti, how do you get that system to function efficiently, effectively, into a high quality of, you know, quality of care? So it, it's, you know, the, the work is, it's the same work, just in, in a different environment. Um, and, you know, the fact that the two environments have this common thread is is ultimately synergistic, right? It makes you better, more effective when when I'm in Kings County, but also makes me more effective when I'm in Haiti. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. You made the point about trust. A break from the theme a little bit, but honestly, I think the best advice I have for anybody that needs surgery is find a surgeon you trust and trust the surgeon. And it's, absolutely, it's a lot harder than it sounds. But when people ask me for advice on on what to do about a surgical problem. Those are the only two things that, that I try to do. So it's so true. Look, so whenever anyone asks me, like, who do you recommend a surgeon? I'm like, well, did you meet the surgeon? And I say, yeah. I'm like, did you like them? And if they said, yeah, I'm like, that's all you need to know. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if they're a board-certified surgeon practicing in the United States, the most important thing is you like the person, right? You're going to do better if you like the person and you trust them and you feel like they care about you. And... Um, you know, getting to that point is, it's, that's, that's the, you know, people traditionally, the art of surgery, but that's, that's the special thing, how you develop that bond, develop that trust, where you use, you know, sense of humor, or just be curious about the other person, all those things end up with, you know, you end up in, in, in a situation where, you know, both the parent, but the patient and you are going to have a better experience and better outcomes. One thing that I'm becoming more and more aware of uh, is uh, how maybe sort of the, the uh, surgical education in the United States mm. may not necessarily prepare someone to provide the surgical care that is necessary in a global stage, right? If you're yep. the surgeon in, at somewhere in Haiti or Burundi, are there surgical skills that you've had to develop that weren't part of your training? Um, be, you know, in order to, to fulfill the needs in, in the environments where you've worked? Yeah, certainly. Like, you know, the way surgical training is going, you know, in the United States, it's, it's all into more siloed, specialized care. Both of us are general surgeons, so we are part of the broadest, you know, the broadest trained surgeons 
there are here in the United States. So, you know, to do global health work, what, the way we've been trained is great, but we still didn't get any training in orthopedics. We didn't get any training in uh, neurosurgery other than maybe some cursory stuff. Um, and when you get to a district level hospital in the developing world, almost 50% of your cases are orthopedics. Hmm. So, um, and then also a large burden of your, of your healthcare is obstetrical. Um, you know, one of the biggest ways to reduce morbidity and mortality in functional district level hospitals is by providing emergency obstetrical care. You know, I wasn't technically trained to do C-sections, but I have over the years through working with surgeons in different countries become proficient in C-sections. I was lucky that I actually did a lot of gynecologic surgery in my residency, so pretty comfortable doing that. But you're right, um, you know, the, the best training for someone working in a district-level hospital would be really broad, big degree of general surgery, but also orthopedic surgery and, and probably obstetrical surgery. Yeah, I, and what I think will probably develop as the field develops uh, is perhaps training programs that cater more to that broad deliverable of skills. It's just, you know, what's probably going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years is actually surgery, surgery training as we know it will probably change as well. Um, you know, the way we were trained is like five-year general surgeons may not be out there in 10 and 20 years. So what I could possibly foresee developing is perhaps a, a global health track for surgery where you do have a certain number of bellwether procedures that you have to understand how to do, like you know, debridement of open fractures, C-sections. Um, so my vision for global surgery is that there would be programs train people specifically for that spectrum of skills. And now I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but you, you mentioned Burundi, and I happen to know that's because that's where you're putting your efforts and in investing mm -hmm. in a project in Burundi that is uh, a little bit more in that uh, aspiring to be transformational investing in health infrastructure. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what has been, you know, you're working on and what that process has been like? Yeah, sure, definitely. Project in Burundi is uh, at the stage now where we're, we're basically building a district-level hospital, which basically means a hospital uh, that can provide all the essential services for a community in a catchment area, particularly um, obstetrical care and surgical care. So right now, uh, the organization I work with, it's called Village Health Works, um, has been around for 10 or 12 years. It was started by a Burundian who had to leave Burundi and spend time in the United States and, and kind of return to his community in southern Burundi, rural community. Uh, started a uh, clinic and it's now a small hospital and we have education programs and agricultural programs and economic programs. But one of the sorely needed things in, in the region is actually a, a functional hospital that can provide surgery and obstetrics, um, but also uh, something that can be a foundation for teaching and training. A little bit of background on Burundi, you know, it is Depending on where you look, it's one of the three poorest countries in the world. Um, it um, had a kind of long, drawn-out civil war uh, that ended in the mid-2000s, but really hasn't seen much of recovery since then. And um, uh, as a result, um, whatever infrastructure there was for its healthcare system is 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 kind of been gradually deteriorating, and so. What we aim to do is, is to try and, and kind of stop that slide uh, and, and bolster the healthcare system throughout the country keenly by providing uh, a place for uh, young Burundians to develop careers in healthcare, whether it's through training or administration or, or, or other things. The difficult part about that in a setting like Burundi is that in order to make a functional district level hospital, you really got to start from the basics. You, you have to think about, you know, electricity, water, wastewater treatment, um, very basic things that you take for granted, not just here in the United States, but in a lot of other um, African countries. So we've had to, in our, in our plan, take, take a few steps back um, and try and think about how we're going to provide, um, you know, responsible 
consistent energy, uh, water, sanitation for our facilities. Uh, because without that, you can't you can't have the foundation for a hospital. So my work has been, even though I am a surgeon, I've had to take these steps back to to help the project implement all these infrastructure uh, changes that have been needed, but then also plan for a clinical facility that that can prioritize these key elements of care, um, particularly surgery and obstetrics. So, I mean, that's the project. I don't know if you have any specific questions about that. Well, I get the impression that in a lot of surgical environments, if they can't survive off the vent at the end of the case, or at least by morning, then, it, you know, there's a question of is it worth the health resources yeah. to keep the person alive. So what's the sort of ICU level or intensive care in, in, that's yeah. appropriate for a project like that? So a project like that, let's, let's take a country like Burundi, you know, very poor, ultra-poor sub-Saharan African country. You know, there's, there's a large burden of disease in these areas that is due to injury just off the bat. Um, and that number is, is just going to increase. The percentages of that is going to increase with the amount of roads increasing and, and all those types of things. Motorbikes as the primary form of taxi. So, um, so there's a large burden of, of trauma care, but there's also a large burden of, of things like burn care. People cooking with charcoal and, and home fuels. So there is a big gap in, in trauma and burn care pretty much in, in all these countries. And then when it comes to, to critical care, there there's a big push in the world. I mean, one of the, the, the not publicized fact is that, you know, there's 7 billion people in the world, right? And only 2 billion have actual access to surgical care. So 5 billion people have no access to surgical care that is safe of high quality and won't impoverish them, right? So it's all about getting access to care, but right after that, it's got to be quality care. So you don't want to build a hospital that can do surgery where you do surgery and the patient dies. And one of the most difficult things of working in this environment is reducing the morbidity and mortality from perioperative complications, whether it's uh, wound infections or respiratory distress. You know, the first 24 to 48 hours of care uh, in these hospitals is, is really crucial. And so... That's where I see, quote unquote, like critical care resuscitation really having the biggest benefit in this setting. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many patients I've seen die after surgery because they really kind of weren't monitored and resuscitated the correct way. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a little bit different than, 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 we, than we have here. Like, you know, th I'm talking about stuff, you know, a lot of times this stuff's done, done in the recovery room, right? And, you know, it, it's not necessarily, you know, the patient that's on the vent in the ICU for 10 days, but it's, you know, the, the person that has peritonitis that needs to be, like, you know, resuscitated and monitored for, for a couple of days. You know, those are the, those are the ones that we're going to save. Or, you know, the mom that, that has postpartum hemorrhage that needs emergency C-section that you need to resuscitate and stabilize. So, you know, the patient population is going to be different. It's probably it's going gonna, it's gonna to be younger. Um, but hopefully, you know, with, with general, like, better outcomes, um, if you can get them. So, so that rapid response and uh, rescue. I'm only thinking of the word failure to rescue, but to prevent those deaths from failure to rescue. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Patients that you do a bowel operation that, that you know, aren't doing well and they end up having a leak. Yeah. You know, those, those patients do not do well in these situations. Patients that have any type of serious complications in these situations really don't do well. And that's, you know, that's right in the sweet spot for critical care. So any words of advice for uh, young physicians, young surgeons trying to build a career in, uh, in global surgery? And sort of the corollary to that is where do you get your funding? How do you, how do you pay for this? <laughs> yeah, so the, two uh, questions. Uh, it's two questions. They're related. They got... In order for me to kind of like answer them intelligently, I'm going to have to answer them separately. Um, <laughs> so what? What? So what's my recommendations for aspiring, aspiring medical students, surgeons? One is, is be good at your craft. Like number one, you know, do well in medical school, do perform well, learn a lot in your residency, concentrate on that stuff for you know, you got to concentrate on that stuff for ten years. Yeah. Right, and it ain't going to be fun all the time, but 
you know, it's, it's a lot of work, but at the end, you're really going to have something that's super valuable. Something to offer. Right. It's something to offer and something that's really, really special. And you lose sight of that when you're, when you're in the thick of things. And, um, you know, if you go through a year without thinking about quitting 10 times, like, it's pretty amazing. Um, but get through that. Be good at what you do. Because, you know, none of this, none of this matters if you're not a good surgeon. Um, you know, you have to be good at your craft, number one. So make sure you keep that. But I would say the other thing is just stay curious as much as you can and have experiences and, and, and learn about things, particularly in that, in that period. Um, and that's what I did. You know, I had, like I think I said earlier, I had experience with vaccine development programs. And, um, you know, I did uh, a lot of, like, homeless outreach stuff as a surgery resident in Pittsburgh, which was, you know, wasn't global health, but it kept that idea of uh, neglected populations um, alive. Um, so when I finally made it through everything and I could, I could step back and say, okay, what do I really want to do with myself? You know, those curiosities I, I could build upon. So really stay curious um, and just keep learning and when it comes to, to kind of like charting out a longer, longer vision for your career, if you, you, you have an idea of, of kind of where in the world or what type of place in the world you want to work, just start spending time in those places. Because how effective you are is not as much about, you know, your degrees or your training, but about the relationships you build in these places. So how effective you are is going to be predicated on the personal relationships you have with people, uh, particularly people on the ground that are living, living through the kind of difficulties in providing care in these areas. So try and find a place where you can repeatedly go to. And don't just learn about what's going on in the hospital, learn what's going on in the community, learn what's going on in the country. Um, all those things are really important. You know, Visit like we did. Visit the National Teaching Hospital. Visit a mission hospital. Visit a... a you know, a roadside clinic. Like, just take it all in and be curious. That's my advice. And the so, second part, show me the money. Show me the money. So so that's that's the hard thing. So right now, so how did I get it? And that's what everyone asks. How, do I, how did I start doing this? Because it's not like I looked in the newspaper and there was like a global surgeon ad and I applied for it. But the first job I took at Kings County, I was lucky enough that that I had a department chair who encouraged this interest in me. So as much as you can, if you can find people in leader, leadership positions above you that are that look on this type of work favorably, it's, it's good. And he kind of gave me a little bit of freedom to, to have some of my initial experiences in, in, in Haiti. And at that point in time, you know, I wasn't, wasn't getting paid for any of this work. But I was doing some of that stuff I'd mentioned earlier. I was being curious. I was learning about Haiti. I was learning about their healthcare system. I was learning what surgical diseases uh, were paramount in district-level hospitals. So I was kind of like taking stuff in. And, um, you know, I spent time on other projects, too. I was, went to Guyana and went to Mozambique and also stayed curious, tried to, you know, look at all these other different paradigms. And then I've subsequently you know, shifted my focus to this Burundi project to the point where I am now kind of shifted to being employed full-time with this NGO on the Burundi project and not full-time with any institution here in the United States. But those opportunities are few and far between. And the work is of my area is to try and figure out ways to establish more opportunities for younger people. But that's, you know, that's going to take, it's going to take money, right? So it, it's, it's kind of like a balance. It's the same, you know, so I have this job where I'm working global surgery, but what I've sacrificed, I've sacrificed in financial gains. Like, I'm not making the money I would make if I was just a surgeon here in the United States, right? But I get to do this work that's, that's meaningful for myself. But even to get, to be able to get an NGO to hire a surgeon, quote-unquote, full-time to work in this has been, has been a struggle, but the more of us that are in these positions, the more likely it is for these positions to, to, um, to come up. 
And what is happening is as governments and NGOs kind of shift away from siloed care for specific diseases to building resilient healthcare systems, they're starting to realize that they need people like surgeons to be on staff full time. So that is going to, I think, grow. So the question is like, where do these NGOs get their funding? And that's traditionally been a, um, it's been a combination of sources, philanthropy, um, family foundations that have particular grants and programs for healthcare, government programs like USAID or, you know, we have a grant from the Canadian government. And then also there's, you know, potential for direct revenue. Can you actually have a product where you can generate finances? Uh, it's very hard to do that in Burundi, the third poorest country in the world, but there are creative ways of thinking about that. So how do you get these organizations to get enough money to pay the salary that you need to work full-time on this type of stuff? So part of it is is in these grant applications to whether it's the Canadian government or some family foundation, there's got to be a clearly thought out and rationalized plan that puts the proper emphasis on putting in the framework for strong clinical leadership. And these funding institutions are going to know that, that that's going to, they have to be kind of convinced that that's something that they have to support. And it's going to take time to chip away at that, but that's what we have to do. <clears throat> uh, so right. it's kind of a rambling answer. but No, it was a good answer. Um, do you have any... I, I think those type of opportunities will increase. And it's also, you know, it's going to take young people that are interested in this, the willingness for them to get creative and follow non-traditional paths. Um, you, if you want to do this work, you're going to be uncomfortable perhaps in the way you're not going to have you know a traditional academic job at a hospital or something like or a traditional you know private practice job you may have to be cobbling together a locum's job with an ngo job with something else so kind of the next generation of, of people that want to do this may have to get get creative on that, on how they're going to find finance it and make it valuable or find a uh, university willing to invest in a global surgery program yeah well that's that's i think the good the good news is I think universities are beginning to, to get this. Um, the, the bad news is the universities still have to make money, and, yeah. and particularly departments. So one of the things that hurts surgery so much is surgery in all these places, this is a money generator. And so these chairmen of these departments, you know, you are there to make money. And, you know, it's a lot easier in a department of medicine to kind of carve out space but it's harder in a department of surgery because of that loss of revenue generation. Any other uh, thoughts or points that we didn't talk about that you think are important about thinking about the field or a career in global surgery? Yeah, I think the other important take-home thing is, you know, even if you're not interested in surgery, it's the fact that things have changed to, be, to building resilient healthcare systems. You can be any type of physician or even paraphysician and play a huge role. You don't have to be an infectious disease doctor. You don't even have to be a surgeon. You don't even have to be a doctor. You know, you can be a nurse. You can be a PA. You can be an environmental service person. We are pulling our hair out to try and find someone who we think can lead our hygiene and environmental services team, right? So, you know, maybe everyone listening to this podcast is a doctor, but, you know, Tell your friends, um, like anyone can can get involved in this in this work because the needs are so vast. Maybe that's my take home point. Uh, Everyone's invited. <laughs> and I think I'll add a little another. I think I shared one pearl of wisdom about uh, how to get good, how to choose good surgical care. Yeah. But uh, the other one that I teach medical students is if you listen to the patient, sometimes they'll tell you what's wrong with them. And uh, I think that's what, you know, I, I learn Spanish and I find dealing with Spanish-speaking patients, uh, I find a lot more rewarding because I can listen to them. And so I think part of that, what I find compelling about global surgery is sort of learning to listen and, and hear what's wrong with somebody. Um, and it takes patience, it takes learning another language, it takes hearing in parables or aphorisms sometimes and not in the same surgical language, but... Um, you know, I think that's part of the process. That's part of the excitement about it. Yeah. I mean, patience is, is huge. 
not just in caring for patients and what you say is totally, totally true. Like the more time, the more you talk with a patient, the more likely you're going to figure it out or it's just going to be obvious. Um, but patience is also important in this work in general. Like stuff just doesn't happen at the same pace and there are no doubt setbacks. But, you know, being patient and being persistent, 90% of this work is work. You know, the fairy dust, inspirational stories, you know, that's, that's only 10%. You know, 90% of it's work, and it, and it can be frustrating work, but um, super meaningful. So at, at the, uh, at, with any of my interviews, I always want to solicit, ask for cultural recommendations, a yeah. book, an album, a work of art, a performance, something you recommend to me and my listeners that I might not uh, yeah. explore otherwise. Yeah, you, so Simon... Uh, totally sprung this on me. <laughs> he says he doesn't. He doesn't like to spring that on his guests, but he, he sprung it on me. So it's it's one thing. It's, so it's uh, it's actually a book by a guy named John O'Donohue. You ever heard of him? Uh, he's an Irish poet slash philosopher. Uh, but it's called Anamkara, uh, and I think it, I think it means soul friend. But it's uh, it's something I'd say about every two years. I go back to and read. Not only that book, but he also um, did a podcast, and this is a podcast. He was interviewed by um, Krista Tippett on On Being, um, which is, you know, the show that talks about religion and everything. Um, but if you guys can give that a listen, I think you would, uh, you'd like it. Or read the book, John nice. O'Donoghue. Nice. So I have two recommendations for you. Um, and one involves a humble brag, so you'll have to have to grant me that. One is that, that uh, a good friend of mine, Alex Scally, who along with Victoria Legrand make up the Baltimore band Beach House, which I know you're a fan of, they just dropped another album, Seven. I'm presuming it's their seventh album. And one thing that I've always found about uh, their music is that it's so much better live, and they're touring these days. So um, I'll have to, uh, to send you the dates in Philly, and maybe we can invite you a VIP backstage to meet the guys. Um, and the humble brag is that I was actually in a band with Alex when I was in high school. I was always the weakest link. My, my proudest performance is that him and I performed, along with another friend, uh, Nick Creamer, who's uh, a chef in Mount Washington, performed The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron in front of our high school, which must have been a, a sort of surreal moment for everybody involved. Um, but so definitely check out that album, the new Beach House album, Seven. Um, Dude, wait a minute. Is your thing on the internet or something? No. We, this was before YouTube. We didn't record it. Oh, Although, this is just the humble brag. This is the oh, humble okay, brag. Okay. But I've been, trying to get, I've been trying to get Alex to come back and record uh, <laughs> a version of that with me. But um, he's above and beyond that now. He's on sub pop. You know what he's, I mean? So this is big time. He's big time. Um, and the other uh, recommendation, uh, people listening will already probably know by now, but uh, I did a piece recently on uh, sort of a, me a meditation on Baltimore City's legacy of lacrosse, framed through my work as a trauma surgeon, my work in the uh, neighborhoods, particularly in East Baltimore, with uh, ceasefire, and then uh, the recent uh, killing of uh, Ray Glasgow, the 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 captain on the uh, City College lacrosse team. Uh, and what I found was really a, an essential and unknown history of Baltimore uh, is a book written by actually a surgeon, um, Miles Harrison, uh, who was uh, a captain on the Morgan State lacrosse team uh, that was founded in the early uh, 70s, along with Chip Silverman, who was their coach. Um, so I definitely wanted to recommend that an underappreciated history of lacrosse in Baltimore called Ten Bears. So I want to gift that to you right now. Um, hope that you'll take a look at that. And uh, I've been trying to reach out to Miles Harrison. He works at Sinai Hospital. I think he used to work at Bon Secours Hospital. So we actually probably have a bunch of friends in common. But so I wanted to leave you with that. And, and thank you for taking the time to, uh, to come out and, and talk with me. Thanks again for joining us on Knife at the Gunfight. Before we moved on to wrap up the episode, just wanted to talk about another recent tragedy in Baltimore. On May 21st, 
Baltimore County Police Officer Amy Caprio came upon a car of adolescence while investigating a reported burglary in the affluent suburb of Perry Hall. Officer Caprio did not survive the encounter, and four teenagers from Baltimore will be charged with her death. The first arrested was Dante Harris, a 16-year-old from the same housing project where Freddie Gray was arrested. This is where cell phone video showing Gray, also known as Pepper, struggling to walk, would be the last sign of life before he was fatally injured in police custody. The housing project, the Gilmore Homes, is named after a soldier of the Confederate Cavalry and a post-war Baltimore police commissioner, Harry Gilmore. As fate would have it, Caprio was killed within an area that Gilmore would have captured during Confederate raids around Baltimore in 1864. Gray and Gilmore are now among thousands of ghosts that haunt Baltimore to deadly effect and Harris becomes another young man incarcerated in a city haunted by homicide. After Harris was arrested, posts on the social media accounts of Baltimore County Police and Fire called him thug, animal, waste of life, hood rat, while hoping they'd, quote, kill him during apprehension. News media soon found pictures of Harris as a student, a child barely weighing 120 pounds. Excel Academy became well known in the city around the time Harris would have studied there because seven students were killed by gun violence in a little over a year. This is the essence of the crisis haunting Baltimore, endemic violence killing particularly but not exclusively young black men in the city. The racial boundaries between the butterfly of black neighborhoods and the L of white neighborhoods or the city county political and cultural line allow one Baltimore to define the quote other Baltimore and thereby decline the personal, political, and financial responsibility for another's ongoing crisis. The tragedy of Caprio's death in an encounter with a youth from Gilmore Homes eerily echoes the tragedy of Freddie Gray dying at the hands of Baltimore police in the same housing project. This is the result of ongoing deadly hostility between the police and the black community of Baltimore. The symbolic importance of Gilmore Homes in this paradigm is hard to overstate. Baltimore was perhaps the first city in the United States to codify racial segregation in housing, starting with racial zoning ordinances in 1910. While Baltimore was early to introduce laws to enforce racist segregation in housing, this was part of a national phenomenon. The maps created as early as 1937 by the federal government's Home Ownership Loan Corporation further codified this racial guidance to banks and directed loans to areas considered safe investments. The red lines that define black, immigrant, and poor neighborhoods in these maps became shorthand for where and how capital divested from these communities. Recent research out of the University of Pennsylvania has demonstrated how these decisions continue to reflect which neighborhoods suffer today, not only from poverty but also gun violence that is disproportionately rampant in, quote, redlined communities. In this context, Gilmore Homes was founded in 1940 to confine the city's black residents within this Negro housing project. The choice to name the development after a symbol of both the Confederate Army and the Baltimore Police Department hardly seems like an accident. The role of the Fraternal Order of Police in Baltimore, the rampant criminality of the Gun Trace Task Force, and the dysfunctional relationship between the city and its police is the legacy of this history. While history frames our present circumstance, it remains invisible and poorly understood. A ghost that haunts our interactions to deadly effect and separates one Baltimore from the other.
Thanks again for joining us on this episode, this interview with Dr. Thomas McIntyre. I appreciate uh, you also listening to two pieces that uh, were recently put up on Medium, which you can find uh, by searching my name, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. The first, Structural Violence, Racism and Resilience, Baltimore City Lacrosse. And the last one, entitled Dante Harris, Freddie Gray, and the Ghost of Harry Gilmore. The music you heard on today's episode include the new Black Thought track, Ninth Versus Thought, from the album Streams of Thought. And the last song was Last Ride, from the Baltimore band Beach House and their new album, Seven. Thanks again for joining us, and hope to see you again next time.